This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. G'day, welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Selms. Really appreciate having you back. We are not far, probably only about three or four weeks by the time this podcast comes out to the end of summer. Have you been all out there where you can do a bit of hunting, do a bit of shooting, and of course, summertime, doing a bit of fishing as well. So it's on today's show, I've got Isaac Daly from the Noob Spiro podcast. Now, he contacted me and wanted to do a show, but we did have a bit of a cross-platforming, probably... I don't know, it's got to be at least four years ago, and we did a bit of cross-platforming for each other as well, because I do love my fishing as well, Uh, so I thought I'd get back into a bit of fishing. You know, it's summer, a lot of guys love their fishing, whether it's freshwater fishing, whether it's saltwater fishing, they love to do their fishing. So this is a different kind of fishing, this is going to be about (laughs) spearfishing, something that I've never really had, like, literally zero experience about. Uh, I I remember when I was a kid, we used to go down, I think, we used to, one time we went down to Jarvis Bay, or we were holidaying in Batemans Bay, Uh, it was a year from not holidaying in Port Macquarie, and uh, we did a bit of fishing, we did a bit of spearfishing, I remember spearfishing, I think it was a garfish at the time, (laughs) and uh, it was one of those hand ones, you know, the ones where you have the sort of, the big elastic band, and you sort of pull it forward, you hold onto the thing, and then you let it go uh different probably to the spearfishing obviously most uh, spearfishers actually do and so we're going to find out about all the gear we're going to find out what you need what you need to get started uh how to you know, be safe when you're out spearfishing which is the most important uh probably someone listening to this show and rest in peace my friend you know a, a friend of mine his uh, uh that i've actually had on the show his brother just just recently probably within the last six months or so uh unfortunately was they were spearfishing and his brother was taken by a shark and killed which is you know, re- re- really terrible thing for not only him, but also his family as well. So I guess if I could take the one thing out of this, guys, is when you're out there, take care, look after your friends and keep your eye out. You never know. That's what scares the absolute living shit out of me. Why I don't, you know, I don't mind going to the beach, but when it comes to spearfishing, just it's, it scares the absolute crap out of me to go in the water and, you know, deal with sharks and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, but maybe I might do it one day. We'll see. We'll see. So we're going to talk about, you know, obviously doing it in estuaries and so forth. We're going to talk about doing it in open ocean uh, along rock walls all the gear that you're going to need if you want to get started in spear fishing uh, and we might do a bit more fishing as well I've, I've neglected that i know i have and i'm sorry about that we're going to stuff coming up to do with brim fishing uh, flathead fishing because yeah, a lot of guys do love their fishing their four-wheel driving and of course their hunting uh, of course i preference the the hunting myself but at the end of the day i do love fishing when i get some good fish yeah it's it's really really exciting so um if you want to email me for any reason you can email me at australian hunting podcast gmail com or at gmail.com i should say uh, of course australian hunting podcast.com.au if you want to listen to the podcast that's where most people go uh, of course a lot of people on itunes you can also listen to us on the Podbean app we do upload the podcast to youtube as well so majority of my downloads do come from itunes and from the website so that's where they're mainly from but if you need a quick access you can access it from youtube under australian hunting podcast 
just wanted to thank all the people that have been watching some of my videos on YouTube. Uh, I've got another YouTube channel, which is for some of the hunting videos that I made, mainly bunny busting. Uh, AHP Outdoors is the name of that YouTube channel. So if you've been checking that out, uh, a lot of people ask me, I just put one out, I think just about a week and a half ago. Uh, that would have been probably in, actually probably the time of doing this podcast, that would actually been sometime in late uh, December, if not early January. So hope you've been joined. I'm going to make more of those. I'm going to try and get out. I'd really love to you know, do like some, some pig hunting videos or maybe some goat hunting videos, uh, but it's just getting access to those types of areas. Sometimes I do spend my time hunting on public land in New South Wales uh, just because we can get bigger groups that can actually go out in the field. And, you know, sometimes it's hit and miss there. So it depends on what type of video you want to make. And I want to make videos where you're actually you know, shooting game and uh, can be a little bit more difficult hunting on public land than it is on private land, getting the shots on camera. So we've got a great little community there on the on the YouTube channel on AHP Outdoors, enjoying those videos. And I spent a lot of time editing those. So I hope you really enjoy the, the style of editing and it's a bit of a story and it's like, you know, coming away for a trip with us. That's basically what it is and showing the whole trip from shooting to relaxing to nighttime photography, astrophotography to friendship, food, fires, you name it. That's what we like to do when we get out in the bush. So if you haven't seen them yet, you can check out AHP Outdoors on the YouTube channel. Of course, you can find us on Facebook as well, Australian Hunting Podcast. I think we've got about 40,000 people now on the Facebook page. You can also join us on Instagram, uh, Australian Hunting Podcast under the same name. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting out this year. 2020 was a pretty bad year for most of us, including me. It started with the fires, then it went on to COVID. And this year's not looking that crash hot either, unfortunately. So let's hope for and pray for no more lockdowns, guys, because we want to be able to get out there. We want to go hunting. We want to go shooting. We want to go fishing. And, you know, these are our passions. These are our pastimes. And, you know, it's a, it's a stress-free environment getting out, doing what we love. You know, being cooped up in the city, if that's where you live like I do, you know, it's not really ideal and conducive to quality hunting. But, you know, when we do get out, we do enjoy it and we do feel good with all our friends and our family that we're able to get out with. Also, I want to talk about if you're, if you're interested in doing a podcast, you're a hunter, shooter, fisherman, and you want to be on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you to give your perspective. So it doesn't matter if you're male, female, young, old, in between. We love talking to everybody. So if you're interested uh, and you've got a bit of an aspect or a bit of a, a field that you have a lot more experience in, let us know. Uh, if there's anything you want, anyone you want on the show, email me at the Australian Hunting Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, always looking to give you guys what you want. Of course, as usual, I really do want to thank all the Patreon people that do support me on the show. Because without them, I really couldn't do what I could do right now. I've got to work full time like most of the people doing podcasting and videos on YouTube. And uh, this certainly helps to keep me going, keeps me upgrading some gear. Just bought another microphone just recently as well. And just want to thank all the people on Patreon. Without you guys, I really, really couldn't do it. If you want to help out, you can join me at uh, patreon.com forward slash HHP. That'd be greatly appreciated. So anyway, uh, Isaac Daly is the host of the Noob Spiro. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about those pesky little sharks that we've got to try and avoid it at, at all opportunities. Um, and the best way to do that, safety measures, gear, equipment, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it in talking about spearfishing. And congratulations to you. You've been going on podcasting since November of 2014, so six years. So uh, certainly a long time in the podcasting and social media arena, that's for sure. 
Awesome, Jace. Thanks for having me. Um, I actually reached out to you, I think, when I was just starting and you gave me some pointers, you helped me out and you were already, I think, three or four years in. So massive thanks and uh, and it's awesome to be on the show. Yeah. How, how long ago did we do that? We did, we did some cross-platforming stuff, which I already talked about yeah. during the intro and it was probably, that was probably four years ago, I think. You probably maybe six months, a year in. I can't remember. I think, I think, I think I'm right. I think I was a year into it and you were like, uh, and I was like, I think my show got 2,000 downloads a month or something and you got 10,000 or 20,000 or something like that. And I was just like, holy shit, I can't believe this guy's talking to me. And then, uh, no, no, straight up because I was like, well, why would you want to do a a cross promo with a guy with such a a little spearfishing show? And, um, and yeah, we exchanged clips. So I had a couple of Australian hunting podcast ads on my show and you had a couple of Noob Spiro podcast ads on yours, I think. So it was, it was a good exchange. It was. We should do that again, I reckon. Maybe do some cross-platforming stuff. That's yeah, what yeah, I like to do. Like to, there's always seems to be this thing, isn't there? I mean, we're obviously in separate sort of arenas, I guess you would say, of different yeah. outdoor activities. I, you know, I like my fishing. I love my fishing. But, you know, people get – like I've had contacted people before, and the person that I'm probably talking about might even listen to this show. But when, when I've yeah. contacted other podcasters, they're like, oh, oh yeah, really? And I'm like, yeah, what, what's the problem? Oh, just, you know, like as if we, we have to be enemies – because we both do similar <laughs> podcasts, you know, like oh, yeah. it just doesn't make any sense. I'm like, dude, just because we got this, like this is where Australians have got to get their heads out of their asses, so to speak, and realise, man, it's not a pissing contest of who's better and who's worse. It's about working together. Oh, 100%. Nah, like there's a couple of new guys in like with spearfishing podcasts and we all chat and talk and we've all been on each other's shows and stuff. And I'm like, you, yeah, like why are we in a competition? Like if you've got a rad show, people listen to it. Who gives a shit? So... 100%, man. Tell us about yourself. I mean, you're obviously into spearfishing, but uh, tell us about that journey just in general, like where you grew up, where you live, and a bit of information about yourself. That'd be great, man. Cool. Yeah, um, Yeah. so my name's Isaac. I grew up uh, in New Zealand, the North Island, Taranaki, uh, very much sort of like the mountains an hour away from the sea. You can go surfing and skiing in the same day. And uh, just grew up in the water, like life-saving, um, swimming, competitively swimming, and then sort of progressed into bodyboarding and surfing, although I was terrible at that. And then uh, about 17, 18, I started scuba diving. And then a lot of people say scuba diving is the gateway drug to the free dive spearfishing sort of world, and particularly if you've got that hunting sort of mindset, you know. And um, so that's what I did. I, I, um, I was doing the scuba diving course, but I started just jumping off the back of the boat with a pole spear and not worrying about the tank and just plug in a few butterfish around Wellington, New Zealand. And um, and that that sort of started it. But then there was this huge gap because in my early 20s, I moved to Queensland and to Brisbane. Uh, I was going to travel the world with a couple of other blokes I was in a band with. And uh, that never happened. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a few years later, I, I bloody, you know, I finally got to um, save up and buy the equipment because there's a bit of a barrier to entry there. And then it was just a matter of figuring out how to do it, you know, like how to hold your breath. And I had to get my fitness back and find locations, find buddies, figure out all the species. Because like in New Zealand where I grew up, there was maybe 20 species that you could encounter. In Queensland, I think, even in Brisbane here, there's possibly 150 species and, you know, that you can actually spear as well. But, you know, like it's not easy to do it and it's quite hard to learn how to identify it. So I had a whole ton of issues sort of, like that I encountered when I when I was starting, that's for sure. 
Now, let me just say, you're a bit crazy because I've got a friend who, uh, I think Taranaki, I think he's from New Plymouth. And um, yeah, yeah. I've got, got a, the there's a couple of guys that I know are hunting over there, Taranaki area, and they've got yeah. goats and deer. And I've seen, had a guy on the show, yeah. we talk a fair bit, uh, J.E. Wilds, Joe Eglinton, does, he's a Kiwi fella, does um, a lot of uh, hunting videos and, and uh, fishing videos as well, catching these big-ass kingfish. And I'm like, yeah. why on earth would you come to Australia, dude? New Zealand is the mecca for outdoor activities. Mm-mm. Yep, you're 100 percent right. Um, you know, like that. It's one thing I didn't even appreciate it until I left. It was how accessible and and free everything is. You know, like hunting and fishing, it's easily accessible. Um, you, you just, it was like I don't know. It was just an ignorance thing, I think. And then I got to Queensland, and we've got amazing species here and stuff. But generally, I've got to drive for an hour and then head out, head out in a boat. And um, so you're talking like every time I go spearfishing, it's a full day activity. Um, whereas in New Zealand, you could, I could probably, like I've got a mate in New Plymouth actually. He's a science teacher, Pat, and he he can he teaches science during the day. In the afternoon, he can head out into the breakwater and shoot a kingy on the same day. You know, for me, I, I look at that and I do envy that and I miss that. But um, but that's a different type of spearfishing here, and we we do get more diversity of species. I can still shoot big kingies in Queensland, believe it or not. Um, but not as big as as, we, as they get in New Zealand, that's for sure. What I mean, do you ever see yourself uh, going back to New Zealand or not? You're well and truly entrenched here in Oz, or? Nah, I'm well and truly entrenched. But last March, I went back to New Zealand to hunt the Three Kings, uh, which are an island group sort of 50 nautical miles off the far north of New Zealand, and that's where the world record's been taken. Uh, a guy that uh, I've spoken to before, Nat Davies, sort of sent me an invite for him and his wife, um, to, to go out on their, their their huge boat, basically, and just do a three-day trip out there and possibly shoot a massive uh, yellowtail. And uh, it was a special trip. Like You can't even pay for this kind of trip. They don't do charters or anything like that. And it was only through knowing, you know, people in spearfishing community can be pretty powerful like that. And, uh, yeah, so I was back there last March last year with them, did three days out there, took a mate from Melbourne, James, and uh, we had an absolute ball and plugged uh, a huge kingy each. And uh, just... Just like staying out on the deck of a boat and, you know, like eating uh, power or abalone just off the, on the back, uh, I managed to shoot a 27.5 kilo um, yellowtail on, I think, day three. And James managed uh, 32 kilo. He had to upgrade me. So that's what Melbourne people do uh, uh, on, day, <laughs> on day two, I think. And uh, so, but we shot a special fish each and it was a trip of a lifetime, honestly. Like, um, it's like, it's like Jurassic Park for spearfishing, like, the structure just comes out of the water in the middle of nowhere, like just an amazing electric blue water. And, you know, like it's like a, a, a carpet of pink Mau Mau, like five metres below the surface, even though you're in 40 metres of water and you can see 40 metres, like this carpet of blue Mau Mau sort of stop you from seeing everything else. And then these three King Trevally, like up to sort of eight, nine kilo were busting through and like, it was, it was literally like if you wanted to just shoot them all day, you could. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. But like spearfishing is pretty sustainable and selective, and um, you just shoot what you need. You know, like we were there for three or four days. We probably shot ten or twelve fish because we were there for a specific reason, and and just the experience was was just phenomenal. Now I've seen people catch these big kingies in New Zealand on rods and reels, man. They they, they just. <laughs> You've got to have big gear. So how on earth do you do that when you're in the water? You see a big king, bang, you shoot it. Doesn't it just drag you around or what happens in that situation? Yeah. yeah, if you've got standard like spearfishing gear and you do shoot like a huge yellowtail and you don't kill it instantly, which is 
it is quite uncommon. Like if you shoot a fish in the in the spine or in the brain, we call that a stone shot. Um, but if you don't manage to kill it instantly, which is most of the time, and you shoot, like I say, a, a kingfish over 30 kilos, that thing will just drag you to the bottom. Um, so we, we use a, a variety of, of, of systems. Basically, um, you have a float system on the surface, like like in Jaws, the movie, you know, where they shoot the, the shark and there's these huge barrels off the back of the yeah, boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that, but just on a miniature scale. And um, so basically you just tie the fish out and then you sort of, um, you keep pulling in the slack from the line until it gets um, tighter and tighter. And then eventually you go down and you s- slip a hand into their gills and that just pretty much stops most of the movement. And then we do a process called Icky Jimmy, which is just basically just stabbing the fish in the brain and then that just puts the lights out and then bleed it, and away you go. You've got a, a fish of a lifetime. So if you didn't have that float at the top, what, they'd basically just pull you to the bottom and that'd be the end of you. Is that how it works? Or uh, one question before we get into the main stuff about, so mm. when you shoot mm. the fish off, is it with the, again, because I know pretty much nothing about this, which is, again, why we're having you on the show, uh, yeah. when you shoot a fish, like obviously you've got your, your spear gun, is that somehow, like say you don't drop it, if you spear something and it pulls you and then it, it goes straight down, are you going down with it or does that float at the top stop you from getting pulled too far down? It's a really good question, and I think it's something like there's several different systems we use. So um, the shaft that we shoot from the spear gun is tethered to the spear gun by a shooting line, generally monofilament or Dyneema. Um, and then the spear gun, you can have a, a, a rig line off it to a float on the on the surface, and then basically you can when you shoot a fish, I can just let that gun go and head to the surface and grab my float. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and gotcha. then I can just I can just pull the rig line in, and I can grab that fish and put its lights out. Another another common way, particularly in Queensland and um, California, places with the big kelp forests, or where you're hunting in structure, you can have a reel on the bottom of the spear gun. So basically, when you shoot your shaft into the fish, you hold on to your spear gun, and but you've got 50 meters of reel line, and so as you head back up to the surface because you're holding your breath, um, you just sort of let the reel free spool. And then, uh, and then it's just like like anything else. You just sort of pull the fish in and play it, just like you do with a with a rod and reel. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, just never sort of thought how it worked before. Like, a, you know, I don't want to get dragged to the bottom, and then I've got no breath left, and that's the mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's the end of me, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. How did you no, get? Most, this? Sorry, go on. I was going to say, most of the time, like we recommend guys start with like a a fifteen meter uh, float line and a float, and and basically that way. You know, you shoot the fish, you let go of the spear gun, you go to the surface, head to your float, and then you can just pull it in at your leisure. You know, so you, you're never really concerned about anything. You've just got to make sure you don't get entangled in the lines. But yeah. um, And there's no chance of them pulling that float under. It's just too much air in it, too much like – although, oh, man, Jaws did, man. When I watched Jaws, man, he pulled like two floats under, man. So that's what scares the nah, shit out of me. The king, the kingfish um, that I shot was 27.5 and it – pulled a 15-litre float uh, 15 metres down in the water column until it was a third of its volume. And then and then I had another float on a line connected to that and then another float again. And I managed to uh, pull down one float 15 metres down. The second float was about you know eight, nine metres behind it, also buried, and then there was a stopper float on the top. But um, kingfish have got wow. nothing on a, dog, on a dog-tooth tuna. Dog-tooth tuna will bury, you know, they'll bury everything. Um, so... Wow. I haven't shot one yet. But that's definitely on my list. Like, there's a few select places in the world where you can go to shoot them, but they're 
start something else. I know. I've seen this. That's my goal one day. I wouldn't mind like rock fishing going to New Zealand or something and, you know, trying to catch them. We can catch them here in Sydney too, but normally a lot, a lot of them are only rats unless you're, you know, going out offshore and stuff like that. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, going offshore, you end up getting sick and <laughs> things like that. So I've got to get used to that too. Get those ET, uh, you know, non sickness pills into me. Your mate keeps going, come out, come out. I said, mate, got to get those pills into me, dude. Otherwise, I'm going to be, I'm going to be finished, you know, maybe much fishing going on. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It affects so many people, the old sea sickness. Um, the old quails. Quails work all right, I reckon. You, like, you just got to make sure you take them half an hour before you even set foot on the boat. But I, mm. I, what me personally, I can't relate. I don't I don't get seasick. So, um, yeah. yeah. There's nothing yeah. worse, is there? I've talked to a lot of guys and I've been on, I've been on yachts even. I was in uh, yeah. many years ago travelling across on this 50-foot yacht from Toronto, Canada over to Oswego, New York, and we're going through the lock yeah. system heading out to the Hudson River. And, you know, yeah. the, the locks pump you up and then pump you down and stuff like that. You continue on. And, mate, we got to about, oh, would have been... I don't know, probably three, four nautical miles from Oswego, New York, and then I've never, ever seen swell this big dude from a lake. I mean, Lake Ontario is, is fairly huge. It's almost like an ocean in itself. But I was like, mm. how on earth is this swell so big here? And eventually we had to radio the uh, US Coast Guard, and they end up coming, <laughs> towing us back into into New oh, York, into the port oh. there, and had to you know show all our you know IDs and passports and so forth. But I'm like, I'm just stare at the horizon, hope for the best, because we end up losing power because we weren't, even though it was a yacht, we didn't have the sail up, so it was just basically under motor power, and the motor failed. And when the when the guy that knows about boats gets down into the engine room, comes literally back up 30 seconds later, sweating and spewing over the side, you're like, yeah, things aren't good, man. <laughs> Call the Coast Guard, man. Like, you know, because it must have been, obviously, it was you know, the engine was top was closed off, must have been hot down there. He can't see either. You, he's moving around, and he didn't last that long either, dude. And I'm thinking, well, this guy's pretty experienced. Holy cow, you know. Mm. So, no, sailboats are something else. So yeah, that was my that was my experience. But how, how did you end up getting into? Uh, I mean, I guess you're back in New Zealand. You started spear fishing there. But how did you get into it? Family, friends, dad? Who was it? Um, it was my instructor actually. He's a country bloke from Partia. Ron Opie was his name, and um, he was a scuba diving instructor. But he was very much that sort of uh, catch and gather sort of dude. Like um, we'd be off Partia and some of the reefs up there, North and South Trap. And, um, like, if you got five metres visibility off there, you were just like it was Christmas time. And, uh, you know, most people think, oh, five metres of water, you'd scare the crap out of you. But uh, this guy was just a, he's a real natural in the water, and he just really instilled this, this joy uh, to me, about, but just about hunting and collecting. And we'd be in these reefs in 20 metres of water, five metres visibility, and, you know, off part here because of the, the – you get these very small weather windows, like – it was like a, being in a supermarket for crayfish. Like I'd be in a hole looking at 25 crayfish and um, you never had any problem um, filling a catch bag. It was just running out of a tank of air though, because I'd be so excited. Like I just, um, I'd just chew through a tank of air. But, um, and then we started mucking around with pole spear. I think we had a friend in competition to shoot butterfish and, um, and I, I think I narrowly pipped them. So that's probably what started it. But there was a bit of a gap when I came to Queensland and starting in Queensland, I had, you know, like I think I ended up, I bought some gear. I bought I bought cheap gear, so I ended up having to buy twice, as you do. And I bought a, a shitty spear gun, you know, that I just shouldn't have bought. You know, I, I think there's a, definitely like a, an acceptable starting platform for a decent spear gun. And if you try and go too cheap, you just end up buying some garbage that wounds fish and stuff. And I did that. But anyway, and I, and I ended up 
spearfishing in a, in a, in a no spearfishing zone because I just didn't know. It was just ignorance. And, um, and there's so few spots um, to spearfish in southeast Queensland from the shore. You really need a boat to start accessing, um, you know, the outer reefs and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was spanking flatheads and moorwongs in um, shallow water where I shouldn't have been uh, in, a, in, a, in a basically a shipping channel. Um, and that was <laughs> hey, at least you're honest. I'll give you that. At least you're honest. <laughs> yeah. And, you, you, you know, like obviously that is part of the, the journey, though. You know, it's learning. And then, you know, that's partly why I started the New Sparrow because I just realised it wasn't just me having all these issues. There were there's tons of us, you know, like – Spearfishing, while it's not super complicated, there's just some real specific skill sets that you need to learn, like holding your breath, relaxing, there's hunting, there's equipment and maintenance and, you know, all these sorts of things. And and, and all of them are really interesting. You can just geek out for days on, on any sort of facet of spearing. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, we're just going to go to a quick break first, but I actually me and Isaac were talking about this before the show, just about ads and so forth. Guys, I forgot to mention on the show, uh, Camo Warehouse, one of our sponsors, use AHP10 at checkout for 10% off. So if you have been buying from them, my apologies that I didn't actually tell you about the AHP10 in the advertisement because we did sort out that a little bit later. So don't forget AHP10 for Camo Warehouse. We'll be right back. Camo Warehouse is Australia's leading supplier of quality hunting clothing and accessories. We stock leading outdoor clothing brands such as Rocky Boots, Georgia Boots, Hunter's Element, Ridgeline, Spiker, 511, Stony Creek and many more. Camo Warehouse is the leading supplier of optics and shooting accessories including Leopold, Bushnell, Zerotech, Lyman, Powerbeam and Lightforce. We can also order in custom Boyd stocks from the US to your specific requirements. Camo Warehouse offers as flexible, zero-interest payment options including Afterpay and ZipPay. Order via our website at camowarehouse.com.au or give us a call on 02 6771 2836. Yeah, guys, check out Camo Warehouse. It always helps us out. That's great stuff. And um, get 10% off with AHP10. Mate, Isaac, uh, how, how, how old are you now, actually, and how long have you been spearfishing for? I'm 39. This is the delicate old age of... Oh, old shit. 39. Same age as me. When are you 40? I'm 40 in uh, April. November. So you've got six oh, months. Oh, shit. All right. It's all so, downhill. Yeah, fat and old. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I do notice it. I reckon, like, I go out diving with these other blokes that are around the same age as me, and we're all diving these outer reefs and deep water and current, and I'm, my freediving fitness is just not there. Like, I've got to lose 10 kilo this year, to be honest. Like, um... It's a demanding old old pursuit. Like you, you don't have to be in tip top shape. It's a, it's a different kind of fitness, but I'm carrying I'm carrying a bit too much, I reckon. Yeah, it's always important, no matter what you do, isn't it? Really, um, you know, mm. compared to hunting, you know, shooting, you got to get around hills. And I've got, as I said, I've got a couple of guys from from your native homeland, and I see some of these hills when they go hunting, and they're on top of these ice peaks. And I thought, oh shit, how'd they get up there? That looks really, really, really steep. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? But um, what about uh, – did you ever get yourself when you came here, you know, never in New Zealand or here, get into any hunting activities or shooting? No, never? I did, actually. I was listening to your Camo Warehouse um, thing, and, and uh, the Leopold Very 3 was the scope I had on. I had a 30-odd 6, it's a Ram Mag, and I did start hunting. It was actually a wedding gift from um, my ex-wife's father, funnily enough. Um, and him and I used to hunt together. He taught me a hell of a lot about hunting, and uh, we, we still chat these days, but um, – he took me out uh, red deer hunting um, in the Brisbane Valley, sort of Esk to Goolawa area. And, 
yeah, I managed I managed to get my first red probably four years ago. And uh, just I managed to hunt down a hind and sort of get up on it and put a decent shot in it. And when I was sort of in my late teens, early 20s, I guess I was working in meatworks in New Zealand. So I did have some butcher skills. So uh, we butchered that field, field butchered that thing and carried, packed it out of there. It was bloody good. Uh, the good thing about a lot of the hunting, I think, in Queensland is everyone sort of, you're generally pretty close to your vehicle. So it's not like some of the pack carries with meat that I hear about in New Zealand and stuff. But yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's definitely as steep when I see those hills when a couple of the guys that I know, friends make videos, and I think, man, I've really got to get my fit, <laughs> fitness up yeah. to hit some of it. And these guys do it like they're just, you know, like the mountain tar, you know, they're up it. And I'm like, man, you guys are fit. I've got to definitely get into that for sure. But um, what about regular fishing, man, before we get onto gear and stuff like that, safety and all those aspects? Do you do, what about any re- rod and reel fishing? You do any of that when you get an opportunity? I think I was one of the world's worst line fisherman um which probably you know uh this is why i'm a spear fisherman because like rod and reel fishing like you, you never know what's down there and i always was so curious about what's actually in there so having my face you know having me being face down on the surface of the ocean actually looking at what's unfolding before me had way more appeal to me even in the early days i just um remember not being terrible at learning all the knots um I don't have a problem baiting up hooks and all the rest of it, but I just never seem to get onto it. And, like, you know, you're either in too much current, you've got too much line out, not enough weight on your line. There's just, like, there's just so much technicality. See, like, what do you use, soft plastics or jigs or, like, I, I just found spearfishing just more up my alley, I guess I'd, I guess you'd say. Let's, I want to talk about the the safety before we get into sort of the main things about safety. Very very important. You know, people don't want people losing our lives for doing stupid things or getting themselves caught where they shouldn't be, way out of their experience level. So, what's the sort of safety aspects? I mean, what, let's talk about safety. You know, is it going in groups? What are some core you know safety aspects that people should look at before they even think about getting in the water? Okay, cool. Yeah, there's heaps of them. Um... The the first question everyone asks generally is, what about sharks? Yes, and I'll, yes. I'll, I'll tell you though, sharks probably come in somewhere at about third or fourth on the on the on the risk charts for most forms of spearfishing. But probably the most dangerous part of spearfishing is uh, the risk of drowning, and that comes through shallow water blackout. And um, so some guys, when they start spearfishing, or when they even when they get a bit confident, they they hyperventilate. They basically overbreathe so that um, it tricks their body into thinking they actually don't need to breathe. And what happens is um, the reason it's called shallow water blackout is because your body's got like a safety switch um, and it just shuts off and, and, and you lose consciousness. And it does that as you're returning to the surface. So normally within the top sort of three or four metres. And if your buddy's not there and you black out, uh, there's no waking up. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Yep. Why does it do that? Why at that level? Like, because you need to breathe, and it thinks, "Oh, should I need air?" And I'm not getting enough. Like, you might have been down a bit too long, or is it is it the distance down? How many meters you are down? Or so it's the oxygen level in your body basically gets below a threshold where it it thinks you're at risk, so it shuts off consciousness because maintaining consciousness actually consumes a fair amount of oxygen. So it, it shuts you off in order to protect like crucial um, functions like. Um, you know, getting enough oxygen to your brain and your vital organs and things like that. So it's more like a safety switch. It's not really a, um, you're not in any danger at that point where you black out. Like 
people have blacked out for you know minutes like infants have done it for long even longer periods of time and then you know when they get out up into the air again they, you've got these receptors on your face when they start getting um air again then y- your body will naturally generally naturally trigger you back to consciousness again so you don't uh, um, need mouth to mouth most of the time it's just that safety switch that's that's flicked you off so, wh- so what do people need to do to stop that happening mainly so so don't don't hyperventilate um uh, you know avoid over breathing and trying to just trick your body into feeling like it doesn't need to breathe like do a freediving course you know because you learn about this sort of this mechanism and how you can relax and hold your breath longer without and, and do it in a sort of a safe way but i guess your number one bit of safety equipment for spearfishing is always your buddy whether you're dealing with sharks or boat traffic or shallow water blackout like the person that you have with you is your is your, your only really bit of safety equipment because if you black out all they really have to do is bring you to the surface pull your mask off your face um blow on your face and then and say your name and then you'll generally regain consciousness again it doesn't happen all the time because most people are pretty conservative with their breath hold when they spearfish but yeah, avoid that hyperventilation, do a freediving course and always have a buddy, buddy with you. That would be my my advice. But I guess the other um, hobby uh, sort of hazards are maybe less obvious. It's it's getting hit by a boat or a jet ski. Um, I mean, you, you've been in the waterways. You know what jet ski guys are yeah, like. Boats. A bit crazy. And, uh, we have these dive flags off our floats, and it means like, you know, when you're within 50 metres of that flag, you're meant to be doing less than five knots. Um, but – Half the people don't see the flags, and even when they do, they don't know what they mean. So guys roar through, you know, what's what's actually signalling a diver, you know what I mean? And if the guy's been down for a minute and he's coming up for air, you don't see him, but then he surfaces and you smash into him with your jet ski. So having a buddy on the surface, you know, he can wave people out off or make sure that, you know, we're more visible on the surface. Um, yeah, but, you know, obviously not spearfishing in, in areas where there's high boat traffic is is good too but sometimes that's where the fish are so what do you do yeah i know just it's it's kind do you ever is it always good to especially if you're new i would probably recommend that do you never go alone like you should always go with somebody yeah i mean it's it's cliche and in, in our sort of community is to never go alone always dive with a buddy and and i think that's sage advice you know and, and there's a lot of advantages like you actually end up landing more fish and but if your buddy's like more inexperienced or has less ability than you, or they make too much noise on the surface, sometimes they spook all the fish. And so some 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 guys just go diving alone. That's what they do. But you know, that's your buddy is your only piece of safety equipment. So if you go out without, you know, you 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 know your major source of safety, then you, you're kind of taking your life in your own hands. So what can you what can you do about those? Um pesky sharks you know that's because literally that's my word i was telling you before the show me brother two two things he wants to do and i told you before the show i didn't tell you the second one but the the first one when he he was doing his um uh you know diving course was like oh we need to you know we did this you do this cave dives man it's awesome and i said oh, okay sounds all right oh it's at night i'm like at night what do you mean he goes yeah you can't see like a foot in front of you you've just got a torch and you can do it during the day but the nights are better and i said mate you're off your head there's no way i'm getting into the water at night time when i yeah. oh, i would just be frozen with fear but uh and the second one one he goes but we've got to go to south australia we can dive with the great whites and he goes he goes we're in a cage and i said yeah but I saw how Jaws ended. It didn't end well, man, even though we're in a cage. So not really yeah. my cup of tea, even if I'm in a cage. <laughs> so how do you avoid sharks? I mean, no, you can't really avoid them, but that's literally 
My I'd worst say, nightmare would be I'm just spearfishing and all of a sudden out of the blue, I mean, probably in Queensland, you're not really going to get them, I don't think anyway, but, you know, out comes this massive bull shark or this, you know, this bloody, if I'm down south, this great white, like, oh, mate, I'd be Jesus walking on water. You'd never see me again. I've never been in the water with a great white, but I think I've been in the water with just about every other species. I would say probably avoid going spearfishing where they're doing that shark cave diving. <laughs> shark <laughs> cave diving. Because those yeah. boats, like it sounds good and it gives people a good experience, but a lot, a lot of us in the spearfishing community would sort of argue that those shark, those um, those operators are training sharks to come to um, to people in boats. Yeah, good and, point. Mm. You know, and they're baiting them, and then they're sort of learning that we're not a threat to them. That's why we're in a cage, and. Because the only like the only real way to manage sharks is to make them believe that you're at any form of risk to them, because they're, they're, they're predators. They're, they're not a, um, they only respond to risks to their health and safety. You know what I mean? Like a big shark doesn't get big because it's dumb and puts itself in risky situations. So even if a shark thinks that there's a very small possibility that you could injure it in some way, it's probably not going to bother taking you on because. Um, if if a shark suffers any form of injury in the in the wild, it's it's going to die. It's going to be vulnerable to other predators. It's not going to be able to feed because it's not going to have the speed off the mark and all the rest of it. So most of the things we do are uh, make ourselves seem um, some form of threat, whether that's you know getting back to back with your mates and putting your spear gun between you and the sharks that are coming in. But honestly, I'll be I'll be real honest. Ninety eight percent of the encounters we have with sharks like a hundred percent peaceful they don't even seem to want to do have much to do with us mm. but um the mitigation strategies yeah it's it's moderating your, your body language making sure you don't appeal appeal appear to be an easy meal like there's going to be some cost to the transaction for the shark whether that's even just like if you poke it with your spear gun um or poke them off in some way at least it, it knows that there's something sharp coming from you you won't even pierce their um their flesh but it just sort of gives them, you know, an, a, an indication that you're not 100% defenseless because um, you, you could shoot them with your spear gun. You're not going to do anything. Um, you're just going to annoy it, and then you've just lost your one form of defense. So back to back with your mates, um, don't bolt for the boat. Like I've had a guy, <laughs> I've had one guy, I took out this. Um, this guy would probably be me plus 10, you know what I mean? So, well, he, he, did a, he did a Jason Selms on me, that's for sure. He walked <laughs> on water, that's for sure. I had this bloke and we, we were drift diving over this reef and it sort of came up to eight metres and the water was crystal clear. Like we had 25 metres vis and beautiful coral, um, amazing fish life. And I had this um, rainbow runner and I was burling it up. Um, so we're sort of drifting onto this shallow bit of reef and then I'm, I'm burling up this frame and it took about five minutes to burly and I had this big trail of burly down and then the fish were coming in and feeding on it and it was amazing. This other guy is his first experience. He's looking down and he's just having a ball of a time. And then we come off the back of the reef and the water drops out to about 25 or 30 metres and I'm just finishing up this frame and I've sort of let the head go and it's going down the burly frame and then these three dusky whalers come in and um, they were like a, a sort of a whirlwind or a vortex just coming up this burly train uh, in, a, in, a, in a big circular motion but sort of like like watching a circular saw come towards your head but um, just made of sharks and um, and these <laughs> these things are coming up like from 25 metres and we're watching them the whole way and they got about sort of 15 metres away and I look around 
Old mate's just boosted for the boat. He's just like, I, I think he's on the boat by the time I looked around. And he's left, he's left me there with these three bloody um, aggressive sharks. And their, their body language changes when they're in that sort of that feeding mode. And they try and um, a lot of it's intimidation and stuff. Like, I don't think dusky whalers have, um, have even got a recorded attack. But you wouldn't know that. You've got two and a half metre sharks right off your fin tips and they've got, you know, their backs all arched up and their fins are all straight out and they just, they're an intimidating sight. But um, anyway, all's well that ends well. I was fine, got back in the boat. Old mate got home that day, sold all his gear and never went spearfishing again. Oh, shit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's the kind of the thing with burley too, you know, like if you're going to use burley or chum, you've got to be prepared to deal with sharks and yeah. I think that's the biggest bit of wisdom with managing them is just like when it when it gets a bit hairy or the sharks are just displaying body language or or um, behaviour that 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 is risk risky you just get out like I was in the water the other day we were out off a out of reef off Brisbane I was diving it in current with mates and um, I had two bull sharks probably one of them over three meters one of them probably about two and a half and they ate one of my fish that I shot because it holed up under a bommy but they never came close to me. I could watch them and observe them the whole time. Um, and I also saw a four-meter tiger shark. It's probably the, the fattest shark I've ever seen. I think it was a big pregnant female. And um, wow. she the bottom towards us. And uh, bull sharks, fairly aggressive. I mean, like they always say, it's, it sucks because it's not the ones you do see. It's the ones you don't see. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah, well, that, that bull sharks are a different animal. Like when you're in dirty water, and um, you see a bull shark, it's probably time to get out. Um, like we're talking less than sort of seven or eight metres of visibility. If I have bull sharks coming in, generally they're, they're very opportunistic and they like to kind of bully you. Um, and I, I always, some people are quite shark, sharks to like, like dog-like behaviour. I don't know if you can do that 100%, but bull sharks kind of, their behaviour changes when the water's dirty. So if you've got big ones around and the water's dirty, I just get out of the water. Um, that's kind of my rule of thumb. Can but, imagine um, what? Like what? What's it? What is it? Because they always look bigger, eh? Uh, like uh, you know, when they're in the water, obviously you think three, four meters. That's that's a good size, dude. Oh yeah, yeah. Talking like more than a couple of hundred kilograms, and um, I mean those things will kill you. You know, like if they, if they bite you anywhere, sort of critical. Like someone's got to get got to get an arterial tourniquet, or it's or it's good night. But um, yeah, like open water, clear visibility. That like like as I said, I was out there the other day. I would have saw three, maybe four sharks over two and a half meters, uh, and they were in the water with me and my friends while we shot fish. Had zero danger to ourselves, and um, mm. it's 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 pretty awesome. You know, you think you got to go to Africa to see a tiger in the wild, like a, a you know, and and or, sorry, not a, a lion in the wild, but here we here we can uh, we can see tiger sharks out in our own backyard. It's pretty it's pretty amazing and. Like I said, zero aggression or, or dodgy body language towards us. So we were just able to observe it, uh, in a, in, you know, in, a, in its own natural state. It's pretty cool. Which ones do you normally see? Like, what's your main species of sharks that you normally see? D- dusky whalers. Um, so the whaler family is pretty, pretty big. Uh, I think the bull shark is also part of the, of the, whale, the whaler family. Um, and then, yeah, probably, probably bull sharks second. Um, we get quite a few grey nurse sharks around in particular areas. There's a few um, protection zones. Um, like I have friends that seem to like I've got a couple of mates, and every year they seem to see great whites. I've never seen one. Um, we get them sort of come come up along the coastline when the whaling uh, migration starts. I don't I don't know if they're feeding across injured or sick ones or or the young or whatever, but 
that that seems to be when we get a, a I don't know if it's a timing thing or what, but we do seem to get them around that time of the year. Yeah, I know. My, my mate told me a story one time, quick story, where he was. I think it might have been down south somewhere. I'm pretty sure it was. Was it up north? I can't remember. But anyway, it was definitely a great white. So they're they're in this um, area, you know, where it goes down to the ocean, like the rock wall or break wall, whatever you want to call it. And this is many years ago, probably 15 years ago. And he goes, we we saw this little great white. And I said, oh shit, right? And he goes, you know, real. I was up. He goes, it came pretty close to us, but didn't look like it was going to attack. But he goes, it was real nuggety, you know, like real. And he goes, I could tell. It, I've seen. He's pretty pretty up on sharks too. And he goes, I could just tell it was just it was a baby, 100. percent It was a baby, but it, it looked a little bit nuggety in the water. And the first thing he's thinking, fuck, where's the, you know, where's the mother? Where's the mother? And he, and he goes, he points to his mate. He goes, oh shit. And that all they did is he goes just. It was about 50 metres across back to the, the, the break wall or the rock wall. He goes, we were just back-to-back men going, oh, pray. <laughs> you know, because he goes, there had to be a mother around. It was way too small to be on its own. Um, so he goes, is this mother teaching it to hunt? No idea, but we're, we're getting the frigging hell out of here. He goes, we never saw the mother, but he goes, we had decent visibility. But he goes, it would just come in and out of that blue and then out again and then in. I go, oh, man, that's my, oh, that's my worst nightmare <laughs> coming true. I don't think it's their mums you've got to worry about when they're little. It's it's them. Like um, yeah, yeah. It's when they're young and small. Seem to be just a heap dumber than the bigger ones. Like yeah. they don't seem to possess that um, same sense of like looking after themselves. So like some of the 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 worst footage I've seen of sharks with spiros is like the little aggressive um, reef sharks and and juveniles of different families. Like they just seem to not have learned, um, you know, to 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 treat risk seriously so they'll you know they're not worried about your spear gun or whatever you know they don't think you pose any threat to them and in all honesty we don't pose much threat to a shark but um if you're aware of them there are some things you can at least you know make it look like you're you know like some sort of threat to them but those huge great whites they can turn on a dime they can cover distance in 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 a fractions of a second like, they're just amazing animals in the water. Like, you, you have to respect them 100%. Uh, last part about that, too. I just wonder, when you talk about that, like, whether it poses a risk to themselves. Like, I wonder, you know, shark, they're pretty, you know, pretty primitive creature. I wonder if it actually thinks in its brain. I don't think its brain's very big, but even if it was, you know, do they actually assess that risk or is it purely just a, mate, it's on the hunt all the time for food. That's all it thinks about, you know, just uh, eating and surviving in the water. I wonder if it actually knows... Like it's it's not not primitive enough to know, hey, if I do this, I could put myself at risk, you know, or is it just a twenty four seven eating machine, you know? I, you know, this is a real interesting topic of study. Basically, they they think there's adaptive behaviour that these animals have, whether it's like it's not logic or reasoned through like it is with us, but it is a form of like learned behaviour, like a a response to threat, and generally that's how those animals survive for so long in the water. They're the ones that do survive, so there might be a genetic element to it. But they've definitely learned behaviour in order to mitigate risk and survive longer, that's for sure. I guess parting comments for me, like with managing sharks, is the one thing we do off Queensland is it, you run a, a boatie all the time so that you might have two two or four divers in the water, like two buddy pairs, um, and then you have a person in the boat and the boat's never at anchor. So And, and then when we signal each other with our spear guns to come over and pick us up, and um, you can imagine the hand signals when it's urgent, uh, a, a screaming voice, like, <laughs> you know, so the boatie, the, we always call the skipper, like the boatie, they they come over with the boat. We generally rotate duties as boaties, come over, everyone jumps on the boat and we move. Um, you know, we do that for sharks. We do that for 
you know, they can get between you and oncoming boat traffic. Um, they can facilitate drifts. There's a lot of the time the current's too strong to swim against. So you might just drift in the current for maybe a kilometre or two kilometres and then the boat picks you up and you go back up the top of the drift again or, or move or whatever. Mm, very interesting. Uh, we want to talk about gear in a minute. We'll just go another quick break and we'll be right the new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit O usaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. Mate, let's talk about a bit of gear. We'll talk about species in a minute as well, but I want to talk about a bit of gear because, you know, what, what do you have to buy? How much do you have to spend? What's good? What's necessary? What's not necessary? Yeah, let's talk about a bit of that. Um, it's not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like anything, like shooting. <laughs> um, there's smart ways to go about it, though. Um, you know, boats are called, you know, the acronym joke is bring out another thousand. I don't, we don't have one for spearfishing gear, but it, it would be comparable. I guess once the good thing is once you've bought all of your core equipment, it's just a matter of upgrading sort of one component. But um, that first initial purchase is kind of hard to get right because you don't want to buy too cheap because then you just end up buying, you know, an upgrade within, the, you know, the first 12 months. But you need um, you need to protect skin so, and, and, and stay warm. So it's suit, booties and gloves. Um, most of the East Coast, uh, you know, once we get down below Canberra, it's a different story. But, um, you know, we can get by for definitely for the summer with a three mil wetsuit if you're down further. And, you know, Sydney during the winter, probably a five mil wetsuit, um, five mil. And, yeah, and your booty should be probably the same thickness as your, as your wetsuit or, or a little bit thinner. Um, gloves, most of us are just using like, um, like a Dyneema, you know, Bunnings gardening glove type thing. Um, because they protect you from crayfish spines and bloody uh, fish spines in the backs, you know, and you and you can hold a fish and and you can still move all your fingers and you can cut it up or do whatever you got to do, stab fish in the brains and stuff like that. So you need a fair bit of flexibility in your hands. Some of the the neoprene gloves aren't as flexible just because of the the nature of the weaves and and so on. But um, plenty of awesome technology in the world of wetsuits, booties, and gloves. You can probably get started with a good wetsuit for about two hundred bucks, maybe. Sort of somewhere between that two hundred and four hundred dollars. There's a sort of a sweet spot. Booties and gloves are both cheap chips. Twenty twenty dollars for booties and Bunnings gardening gloves is fine. Mask and snorkel mask starts at about forty bucks and just keeps going. Um, I still like and use a forty dollar mask. Snorkels twenty thirty bucks. Uh, weight belt you want a rubber weight belt, not a canvas one because the canvas ones sort of slide up and down your body. And when you're getting vertical head first in the water, the you don't really want them to move up and down your body. You just want to sort of them to stay around your hips. Uh, you need the weight belt with weights on them to sort of counteract the buoyancy of your own body and the wetsuit and the booties and the gloves. Uh, you need a knife on you at all times um, for a multitude of purposes, including you know cutting ropes and uh, ropes and lines if there's tangles, stabbing fish, gutting fish, bleeding fish, um, any of that sort of stuff. Even even fixing your own equipment sometimes. You want really good fins because fins sort of provide you with all your propulsion. And if you go too cheap, like if you're just using like bodyboarding fins or 
you know, um, some cheap rubber pull fins. They just, they're okay for a little while and they're okay to a certain depth, but they just don't give you the efficiency you need. Really, we're using these sort of these longer style fins and they're a bit softer um, and they just seem to give you effortless propulsion. So it helps with um, lowering your oxygen consumption because everything you can do to sort of give you a little bit more time on the bottom um, is, is an advantage. So yeah, getting your fins good. And they also like if you're paddling into current or something, you want fins you can rely on and something you can wear all day because you get ankle and uh, sort of calf muscle fatigue. You can start off with plastic fins and then upgrade to carbon fiber, you know, as you get better. Spear guns, definitely there's a there's an entry. Sort now, of how, how much are you normally spending on the fins? What's a sort of good, decent price there to be sort of spending to get some decent ones? Between 100 and 200 will get you a, like a good set of plastic, proper freedive spearfishing fins. Um, you can occasionally get sales and you might get them maybe a little bit lower than 100 bucks, but that's probably around that sort of sweet spot. Carbon fiber fins, I think my fins retail value is about 600 or 650. So, and, and they're, they're by no means the most expensive set on the market, although that sort of 500 to $600 mark with um, carbon fiber fins seems to be fairly common. Um, and the, the foot pockets are, are pretty important as well. Um, you really want to get that, that balance right. Uh, uh, you don't want to buy shit from BCF, unfortunately. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trash talking them or any of the other big discount places that sell outdoors gear. You just, you really want to go to a specialist retailer. Like, these people, they know spearfishing, they do spearfishing, and they sell spearfishing stuff. If you go in there and you want to buy really, really cheap stuff, they'll sell it to you, but they don't want to. Um, and you, and I, I don't think you should actually buy, like, I wanted to talk about spear guns. Like, as far as I'm concerned, in Australia, if you buy a spear gun for under $250, it's probably a piece of junk. Um, if, you, if you only want to spend $250 or $200, buy a secondhand one that's actually good um, because really cheap plastic-made spear guns, they break, they wound fish, they don't have any range, they're not accurate. I just think you, you sort of you just spend that bit of money, get the bit of kit you actually need, and you'll enjoy your diving because there's nothing worse than you, you get everything right, you hold your breath, you're laying on the bottom, the fish that you really wanted to shoot comes up to you, you pull the trigger and you miss it because you wanted to save some money on a spear gun. Um, I think there's, again, there's a sweet spot for spear guns, it's, but it starts at about 300 and it goes to about 500. That's sort of a really good um, base base sort of price um, for, for an entry Good entry level spear gun. That what about a thousand? What does that get you? Does that get you something pretty good? Oh, it's the old law of diminishing returns. You know, like you know, for 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 five hundred bucks, you get a spear gun that's ninety percent. For a thousand bucks, you get a spear gun that's ninety five percent. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, after a certain point, you're not really getting additional value. You you're just spending money because you can. Uh, but there, there's people that do it. Like, there's some amazing gear on the market, you know. Like if you spend a thousand bucks on a spear gun, um, it should be pretty rigid ditch. But probably like with rifles, like you can get more complicated um, than you actually need as well. Like I'm a sort of a keep it simple sort of guy, and I think when you're starting in spearfishing, you want to keep this as simple as possible because you're just learning all the other important stuff like how to free dive, how to you know adopt the decent um, body language so you don't scare every fish away in the ocean. Um, you know, they're the more important things rather than having a thousand dollar spear gun. But mm. um, and then yeah, I, I yeah, I like I like simple a rig line and a float. 
15 meter rig line, you know, should be ample for probably your first year of spearfishing, unless you're a real, uh, you're a real natural and you and you want to go deeper and target um, specific fish and you, and you get training and stuff to do so. But 15 meters is um, a respectable depth for someone that's been spearfishing a year. And when you want to go beyond that and get a longer rig line, you, you, you can join it. You can buy a longer one. You can do whatever you want. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not too bad, really, when you think about it. I mean, if you started with, like, probably two and a half grand, I mean, it's pretty pretty reasonable compared to, you know, most things. You know, you play musical instruments, they can be fairly expensive, you know. You, you know, guns are pretty expensive and ammo and the ongoing costs. And so if you were spending two and a half grand on all that gear, you'd probably, you'd be probably getting some, some stuff that's pretty good to invest in this new hobby. Two and a half grand would be – that's a that would be a good working budget. I think you could get it done for under two if you were smart and you had mates, and you maybe bought some secondhand stuff. But um, if you went much cheaper than that, I think you would honestly just be upgrading gear within a very short time frame. And this is the problem, though. Like, guys want to try spearfishing, and then, you know, what do you do? You spend two and a half grand for something that you just want to try. You know what I mean? You're like, if you can go to a club and or you've got mates, you can just sort of use their gear and, and give it a go and see if you actually like it first thing. It's just, it's just hard. Like, you can't really rent equipment. It's just such a niche sport. Yeah, absolutely. What about um, let's talk about because the dive that's most most important. Obviously, we don't have you know, a tank or anything like that. So how do you how do you learn to do this? Because there are courses where people because obviously there's no better thing than actually being in the water doing this stuff and actually learning, training, spending time. It's like anything: instruments, guns, shooting. Got to get better at it. So what's the best way to do? Is it recommended to do a course? I mean, we're obviously out in the ocean. We could be against rock walls training what depths you can be going, the safety needs, what should you do? Yeah, like um, there's spearfishing clubs all over the world. Like they quite often have like monthly meetups and you can quite often just go along there. And if you talk to the right people and you're just not a dickhead, someone will often just take you out for a short dive for your first time and you can just have a go, see what it's like, you know. And um, But if you want to get really good and if you want to be safe, and uh, I recommend doing a free diving course. They sort of price somewhere between maybe four hundred and six hundred dollars. Um, and if that free diving instructor's got a background knowledge in spearfishing, they understand sort of how how we work. We're a little bit different than like competitive free divers, the way we conduct ourselves and stuff. But they definitely teach you to relax. They teach you all the physiology of it, and they'll they'll get you going with a good finning technique and you know just how to um, how to take a full breath. Uh, all that sort of stuff, just preparing your body to dive all day and um, the stuff makes a huge difference in your spearfishing. Um, yeah, learning to relax, time in the water is huge, definitely. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, you know, you can read all the books you want about hunting and, you know, you, you, you can watch videos all day long, but you've actually got to go hunting to get any better. So you do have to just spend some time out there as well, you know, but I think there's resources as well. You, you know, like if you just go hunting, you'll get to a certain level. But if you go hunting and you read books and you watch videos and you talk to people, you're going to be a way better hunter than someone that just hunts. You know what I mean? Like, and it's the yeah, same. Yeah. It's like, you know, you can shave years off your learning journey and just do things smart just by, you know, using the right resources and talking to the right people, paying for the right courses. All this stuff saves you time and money and energy at the end. 
Yeah, I think it'd be important to definitely, you know, get some sort of training or be with someone, you know, it's probably invaluable. I mean, you know, I'd probably be down there 10, 15 metres going, oh, shit, I need a breath. Holy crap, I've got to get to the top. So, you know, how do you how do you do that? How do you gauge that? I mean, you know, how, how do you know when to head back to the surface? I mean, obviously your body will probably tell you, but, you know, how far do you have to go to the top if you're down doing like some of these really experienced guys going down fairly deep? Um, you know, there's other things that, there's other things you need to worry about, like getting the bends and all that shit. You know what I mean? Like where you, you know, if you come up too quick and stuff like that, is that an issue when you speed uh, spear fishing? Honestly, there are there are there are very few fringe cases of guys getting decompression sickness and stuff from free diving, but we're talking extreme levels of uh, of, of of free dive spear fishing to to depths. Um, 99.8% of, of freedive spheros will never, ever have to worry about uh, expansion injuries, the bends, um, any of the other injuries that you can get uh, like in, in scuba diving and stuff because you're only going down with the air that you take from the surface at the end of the day. So um, it's, it's, it's hard to, yeah, there's no, there's no real unknown risks with it. If you do have, um, you know, like you're at high risk of like stroke or, you know, you know, you've got cardiovascular issues or heart issues or something like that. I'm sure free diving wouldn't be kind to you. Like you, you need a certain level of physical fitness, but it's probably not as as high or as as stringent as maybe some people might think. Like honestly, most of the 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 spearfishing dives I do is somewhere between thirty seconds and two minutes, and two minutes is a is a long dive, and I'm not going to do that all day long. So you know, um, but holding your breath for two minutes under the water spearfishing is much different than just holding your breath for two two minutes like sitting here relaxed in front of my computer you know yeah speaking of that do you is that what you, how do you train for that i'm obviously being in the water but do you have to like when you're at home spend time doing that holding your breath walking around and you know getting a little bit exerted which would be similar to sort of you know obviously when you you know you take a breath and head down you're obviously going to be flipping your legs and stuff like that with the flippers and so forth so is that something you do at home just you know walk around take breaths and then see how far you can go and keep that because i'm sure it's a it must be a skill and a and a physical thing you have to do on a regular basis to make sure you can do it. Otherwise, <laughs> I'd be taking a breath, go down five metres and go, oh, shit, I've got to come back up again. Yeah. I think most of it, like, you know, like I was talking about hyperventilating earlier, like a lot of the, the urge, to, all the urge, all of our urge to breathe comes from CO2 and uh, not, uh, not low oxygen, you know. So when you exert yourself, you, you know, you're, you have more CO2 in your, in your bloodstream. And, and so that triggers your body to want to breathe. So when you hold your breath, the CO2 builds up and your body's not used to dealing with that. So like some of the training that you can do, like the dry training is like um, they have these things called CO2 tables, which basically like you, you hold your breath and then you, you breathe for a period of time. And then you hold your breath again and then you breathe for a reduced period of time. And you continue to hold your breath for the same amount of time, but you reduce your rests between and then that 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 can accustom your body to some higher levels of CO two. So it um, it basically just trains your body to stay relaxed, um, even though that urge to breathe is there. Um, but you know, free diving courses they teach you about all this stuff. Um, there there are some training groups getting around too. Like there's pool um, free dive training groups. Like in Brisbane here, we've got the Brisbane Bull Sharks and uh, Brisbane Free Divers, and they they both run like um, training in a swimming pool. It's kind of like cross training for spearfishing. Though it's not hundred percent relevant, but you know, like the Brisbane bull sharks, a lot of the the, the drills and the exercises they do mimic kind of um, spearfishing breath holds. 
like a, you know, like in terms of like you might swim 25 meters underwater and remain at the other end of the swimming pool for 20 seconds and then you swim back all underwater again. And you, you don't start there, but you sort of, you know, you gradual progression and, and so on. And your body just starts to adapt and you learn to relax, even though, you know, like that urge to breathe, you know, when, when, you, when you get in those big ooh, ooh, and you, you know, when you need to breathe, like you're comfortable, but you, you can get used to it. You can train yourself to do it for sure. Yeah, I want to talk about, I guess, the different places to go, you know, like estuary versus along rock walls to out in the ocean. But just go to a quick break and we'll be right back. Gunkeeper has been developed by the National Shooting Council to help gun clubs with cash grants to help them keep members and keep their doors open. It also helps gun dealers and other shooting businesses attract and keep customers with incentives. If you run a gun club or gun business, make sure you put your hand up for Gunkeeper today. For more information, go to the National Shooting Council's website at nationalshooting.org.au. What about, yeah, where can we go? Where do you like to go? I mean, is, there, is it estuaries? Is that a thing? Is it along rock walls? Is it obviously mostly out in the ocean to get the good big fish? What happens there? Yeah, man, I, well, I started off in the, in, the, in, the, in the crappy, dirty inshore water, like um, brackish water or, you know, yeah, the, the, uh, there's a few estuaries of, of dived river mouths and so on. Um, they can be awesome when you're starting out. You know, you ship flathead and Morwong, Trevally, uh, you know, those sorts of species, and uh, and it can be a lot of fun. The, the problems, I guess, with it are um, because it's available to everyone, it gets fished regularly. And um, if there's clean water, then you might even be sharing that spot with several other people. So you've just got to be aware of where you're pointing your spear gun and all the rest of it. Um, I, I guess... The other as- aspect of diving in some of those locations is boat traffic too. And um, the fact that you, you're all sort of hammering this one patch of shoreline uh, means that the fish, they just they get smarter for sure and they just maintain a distance. If you can get out in a boat, um, that, that can be a huge advantage as well. I guess to find spots in your area and make sure they're legal is when you go in and you start talking to the guys in your local spearfishing retail shop, just ask them for a couple of gimmicks, you know, like they're not going to give you their best spots, but they might give you just two or three spots that you can check out. And then you start to learn skills like, okay, what weather conditions do I need? You know, like, there's like a northerly wind in Queensland, like particularly after it's been blowing for a couple of days, it means the water's going to be dirty. Um, Easterly is not much better. If the swell's over 1.5 metres, I'm probably going to have a hard time getting out through the breakers. And, a, and an even worse time coming back in when I've got three or four fish on the back of my float. Um, that, that's sort of some some quick wins. Um, your, your retailer will help you with two or three spots. And then you got to make sure you're not in a green zone or doing the wrong thing unintentionally like I did. Um, but, yeah, a club, a club is also a great place to connect with people and learn a couple of spots. I think owning a boat, which I've never done, um, opens up a whole new world to you as well, though, like, um, I've never had the money to to buy a boat. I've never had that sort of level of disposable income to to do it because you know boat bring out another thousand. I think it's true. So I've always said try to make you know and keep <laughs> making friendships with people that have boats, and I really appreciate it. And I I make the effort to try and be a person that they want to have on their boat. Um, you know, help them with cleaning, pay fuel money. Um, you know, when you it's your turn to be boaty, be attentive. Don't you know you you should always be paying attention. Um, drop people on the right drift lines and things like that. Um, so, yeah, but you've got to start somewhere. So, yeah, some of the inshore reefs can be awesome. You've just got to learn about weather and conditions and what you sort of, you know, maybe the 
four or five species that you're likely to encounter and be able to shoot because um, what you start targeting when you start spearfishing, in one year you won't be shooting those same species. You'll be leaving them alone. And um, there, are, there are a number of species that are fairly easy to shoot. And after you've been doing it a year or two, um, you're probably not going to target those species because, A, they don't taste as good, and, B, they're definitely not a, a challenge for you. Um, so, yeah, that's, that, that's kind of my, my advice for that. But, yeah, boats bring, open up a, a whole new world. How do you know, like, obviously when, you know, let's talk about species, I guess, and we'll talk about Australia here because that's where most of us are from. So what sort of species can you can you shoot? But also, to what distances? I mean, how far does, you know, a spear, a spear actually go? Uh, and mainly, how do you get so close to them? Because surely if the water's clear, you know, it could be a bit difficult to get so close. Are they a bit finicky when they see people coming towards them at a, at a certain distance? What's the sort of distance you're generally shooting them at? And are they not as freaked out when you're sort of in the water? It's hard enough to catch the bastards on a fishing line, let alone trying to probably spear them, I can imagine, sometimes. Well, when you're line fishing, you're trying to catch hungry fish. When you're spear fishing, you're trying to catch stupid fish. So, <laughs> yeah. beat a fish in a swimming race. You, you, it's just not going to happen. Um, the things that fish can do blow your mind when you're underwater. Like, yeah, like so basically, you're trying to exploit their curiosity. Um, sometimes all it takes is, oh, you know, like it's like Dory and Finding Nemo. I got you. Got to love that anthropomorphization or whatever that is, where you know we start to associate these human things with animals. But you know, <laughs> yeah, these fish are not smart. They they see you and they go, "Oh, what's that?" You know, and they come over and you shoot them. Um, that's pretty much it. Like honestly, <laughs> what do they really? Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot yeah. of the, particularly the fish. Um, you know that you start targeting. They they're not the brightest. If you stay still. And you don't pose an obvious threat to them with your body language, um, they'll they'll swim up to you and you shoot them. Um, but <laughs> oh wow, as, no idea. As easy as that sounds, it's not easy because you know what it's like when you when you got a, a deer in your sights, like you get excited. And even when that you know you know in a in a maybe in a shooting range you can shoot things at two hundred meters. When an animal's in front of you, shooting it at two hundred meters is a different proposition. But um, I don't know if it's the same or not, but our, our range for, for spearfishing is m- most spear guns, their effective range is somewhere between three and maybe five metres, if, if you're lucky. Uh, there are guns that shoot further, but um, it's, it's, it's specialist gear and used for um, specialist sort of um, context, I guess. So most of the spear guns, like if you, if you buy sort of somewhere between three and $500, from a spearfish, spearfishing retailer, you'll be able to shoot, you know, fish from sort of between two and maybe four and a half, five metres from you. Um, and you're generally trying to attract curious fish. Um, they, they come to you. You're not swimming after them. So it's about adopting a relaxed sort of body language. And it's about doing things uh, like in terms of like, you know, you can throw sand, you can make grunting sounds. You, basically, you're trying to mimic uh, other forms of wildlife in their environment to make them curious, they come to you and you shoot them. Wow, I never would have thought that, dude. It just goes to show I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I just would have thought, you know, you, you get down there, you might see a few, you sort of swim after them and hope for the best. Mm. Now, well, I mean, there are fish that sometimes you just see them and you shoot them, you know, like flathead aren't, it's not a great sporting fish to shoot when you're, you're a Spiro. However, seeing the bloody things before they move and managing to get your gun positioned in the right spot and track it through the water and shoot it, 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 it can, they can be more difficult than you think. And 
the big ones. They don't get big because they're silly. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's it's not like shooting fish in a barrel most of the time. You, you've, you've got to learn how to be relaxed and, and, and not appear like a predator, basically. When you're down there, I mean, how do you how do you find them? You go towards the reefs. You know, there's always going to be ones around reefs. What do you what do you like targeting when you go? Out? Like, what's sort of a good you know sport fish when you're out there going? I mean, this is gonna this is gonna be fun. Like, you know, because I like catching. I haven't caught one yet, but you know, I do like flathead. I do like um, trying to get my first Jew fish. I've been trying for years in a couple of places that I like unsuccessfully. But uh, yeah, yeah Mulloway are pretty good. Like, what what are you seeing up there in um, Queensland? We like the same stuff. Um, no one will ever frown at a flathead. Like, they just taste awesome, you know. If you, as soon as you get your head around how to fill it one, they're just delicious, you know. Like, but they're not very uh, sporting to shoot, though. But um, I like pelagic fish, but um, some people love, you know, deep reef fish that are very clever and harder to come across. Um, I think one of the things, you know, like with, with, with line fishing, with spear fishing, is you look for structure. Uh, whether it's reef, whether it's artificial, whether it's whatever it is. Like if you get, um, particularly if you get current hitting the front edge of some structure, generally you'll get bait fish. And then when you get bait fish, you get predatory fish. Uh, when you get a lot of, a uh, few different bunches of species, you seem to get other species that come in. And it's sort of, so I guess to find fish, you find other fish. So you swim until you find fish, maybe an aggregation of bait and then, or, or, or you find an interesting point of structure, like some some fish like hiding in caves and stuff like that, and then you just spend some time sort of working out, okay, what's my approach going to be in this particular situation? Sometimes with um with with bait or school fish, like we'll get surgeon fish, like here off Queensland, you can swim through that school. You just keep your body language super calm, and you lay in the middle of that school. And because those fish aren't spooking around, out, uh, you know, getting becoming scared of you, other fish seem to become more more um, comfortable with you. So they come in and have a look at you. And uh, you just got to be a bit patient. Sometimes it's just swimming to the bottom, and just spending 10, 20, 30 seconds there and just being completely calm. Do you ever, like, get a place where you go, all right, boys, we're, we're going to spear fish here, and you get down there and you get, no fish here? Yep. Yep. <laughs> What do you do then? Just like wait, yeah, wait, head down again, keep waiting for fish to come across the, you know, come across or float in or what's the situation there? I used to, I used to just think that something would change or I'd just keep swimming and it would all come right. And sometimes it does that and it's a little bit like um, it's a false reward, you know, like um, because it's dumb diving, you know, like you're not expending all your resources in the, in the, area of highest yield you're you know you're just hoping a hidden hope strategy you're better off sometimes you do a drift maybe you cover 100 200 meters of reef and you go there's not much going on here boys and then so or or people i should say because there's heaps of lady spirits as well now jump back on the boat let's move and you move somewhere else and you just find something happening you know maybe there's a workup on the surface or you get pick up something on the sounder you're better off just moving and not and not being uh not persevering with a spot that that just doesn't seem to have much going on unless there's going to be something that obvious that's going to change like if you're near the top of the tide like you say you're half an hour off the top of the tide and there's not much current moving around it might be worth hanging around an hour until that tide's started to move in in the other direction and 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 it's changed that like everything on a reef will change when the water movement changes you know and then and then it can be worth having another look at that spot but unless something changes, you know, dramatic or you get lucky, 
you're probably better off moving somewhere else. I guess it's not like bait fishing, eh? You don't really have to worry. And you obviously do in regards to what you were just saying, but generally, eh, you don't have to worry about tides and so forth because you don't have to catch them on bait, so you can get them pretty much, you know, any time if you're in a, probably a good area, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that can be it. You know, like lime fishermen might not be catching anything because um, because the fish aren't on the chew, you know? Like, they look at pressure systems and all this sort of stuff with regards to when fish are on their peak feeding times. For us, it doesn't necessarily matter. Sometimes if they are feeding, it can make it more predictable for us as to where those fish might be congregating because, you know, we're able to go, oh, well, that could be a place where they'll be eating these sorts of fish and so that's where, where they might be. But um, it, it can be weird, you know. But other times, like, there's, there's species, like, that are really hard to get on the spear, you know, like snapper. Snapper are just ridiculously hard in New South Wales and Queensland. Ridiculously hard to get on the spear. Um, if you get them... You're either very good or you got very lucky, um, and sometimes it's hard trying to work out, you know, <laughs> where someone is on that sort of that 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 level. But you know, like I haven't shot a decent size at all, and uh, I've been trying for a while. Uh, oh, sorry, I have in New Zealand, but I kind of a different kettle of fish over there. But um, and, and then you know, guys on the line will be catching them, and we're not even seeing them, let alone catching them and on the spear. So it works both ways. Well, so what? What else you got out there? Like, what's up in Queensland? If you go down, what are you? Yeah, flathead. You, you know, what else you seen? Maybe snapper. I don't know if they're up there. You tell me. What about kingfish? What what species are you generally hitting up there? Oh, uh, well, Queensland's we're kind of sport, honestly. Like when the fish are on, the fish are on. Like I was out at a reef the other day, and on the front edge of this reef system, we would have had possibly. I don't want to exaggerate, so I'm going to say twenty species. But I, <laughs> yeah. I, I would suggest that there was possibly more. Um, there were there like we had we had cobia hiding under two different species of ray, and there was a third species of ray that was coming in for a look. So we had these big black rays. I'm not sure what they're called. We had eagle rays, and we had a manta ray cruise past. Then we had Spanish mackerel. We had a couple of different species of bait. Uh, I had bludger trevally, pennant fish, bull sharks, a tiger shark, jobfish, um, all on the same, and then in the same part of this reef. You know, like literally like 100 square metres of just action, like galore. And then we had tuna, um, long-tail, I think they were long-tail tuna. I didn't get up close to the school and see, but they were going past and they were being worked up by something. You had birds coming in from the top. It was just one of those days and it was just just like really special. Like like I've had a friend, he, he called him David Attenborough moments, you know. Like and you just you feel like you're, you're just part of something special. It's just amazing. So um, I shot my first cobia. Um, so quite often when you see these big rays, the cobia sort of like to hang out with them. Same with bull sharks and, and, and tiger sharks. They will quite often you'll see two or three cobia following them around. And um, when they think there's a threat, they sort of try and hide underneath them. So I shot a cobia off a, off a ray. And that was my first one. It was probably about seven or eight. Though. So um, I haven't eaten any of that yet. I uh, processed the fish and vacuum packed it all. It's all sitting in my freezer. I'm looking forward to busting out my first bit of cobia actually and eating it. I did um I shot a eight kilo green jobfish, which is well it's a it's a really special fish. So I got a little bit lucky and I did everything right. But and then he holed up under I, I was using a real gun. He's peeled off a whole lot of line because you can't really fight a fish. Even eight kilos of a fish like that, you've got to let him run. And he's gone under a sort of a coral bommy and um, come out the other side and my line's sort of wrapped around it. I'm trying to swim up, Karen, and pull this line out and get this fish out. 
struggling on the end of my spear. I'm calling my mate up. It's frantic. And then these two bull sharks came in and just annihilated this job fish and, and it was gone. That was the biggest one I shot. <laughs> oh, shit. But if they're not trying to go after us, I guess they're going after our bloody fish, you know? That's bloody it. sharks. So what did you get? You got a cobia? What did you get? Anything else for the day? Or I shot another job fish that day. It was about three and a half kilo. Uh, they were my two best fish for the day. I did end up shooting another couple of reef fish, but nothing, nothing dramatic. Um, I didn't start off the day strong. As usual, like I've got the GoPro on my head. I'm recording the footage. Nothing good happens for the first half of the day. I break gear and lose fish pretty much. Then the GoPro goes flat, and that was when I started shooting fish. <laughs> <laughs> What's your – like, tell us – I mean, we've got a few more before we finish off, but uh, tell us one of the good stories, like a good fish that you got, like maybe a good fighting fish. I don't know. There's a lot out there, I guess. Um, yeah, tell us a bit of a story. So last year I was fishing on a reef off Morton Island. I uh, had a boatload of guys, uh, relatively new, uh, apart from one other dude, but um, – we landed on this reef and we were in for a treat. Like it was um, like the anticipation and the excitement, even on the boat on the way there was just cool. It was just a bunch of high energy guys and it's an hour motor out to this reef. It's pristine conditions, the sun's coming up, you're out on the open water, you're not at work. We're all just buzzing, you know, and um, cool bunch of guys. We get out there, we get on the front of this reef, we get in for the first drift and I saw three or possibly more I saw. I definitely saw three. There were more in the background. I think school of uh, Spanish mackerel, and they were all decent sized fish, like ten plus kilo. And um, like when you when you see Spanish mackerel come at you and you're underwater, it, it's like looking at these these silver torpedoes. They just, I don't know. They they the, the your heart starts racing. You, your breath hold just goes to shit because you're so excited. You just think you're going to shoot the next one that comes near you, and generally you bugger them up. But um, all of these guys hadn't shot uh, a Spanish yet. So, um, yeah, we just – anyway, I basically ended up shooting this. This fish came in. I, I duck dive, and the, the, the fish were swimming away from me, so I ignored them and sort of turned in a different direction. And two of the, the fish from the school peeled off and sort of made a beeline for me because they were like, well, why isn't he paying attention to us sort of thing? It was That was kind of the, the, the thoughts. <laughs> yeah, right. And they've come in on me and broadsided me. So I plugged one. He's about 14 kilo. And, um, you know, just the, the, the real line just starts to – it makes this distinctive sound when it starts to peel off really fast because it's like <laughs> you, you tension on it, like drag on it, just like you do on a, on a, on a line. And this thing's just screaming line off. And, uh, like, a 14 kilo Spanish mackerel is like – it's not – like it's not an amazing fish, but it's a really good solid fish, and uh, I'm just loving it. I'm, you know, like this is um, when I have moments like that, I'm thinking this is why I spearfish, you know. And uh, swim to the surface. He's pulled out about twenty or twenty-five meters of line, and the other boys are kind of all excited too because they can see, oh, he's got a fish, you know, and they're all coming in. It's kind of like a big team sometimes when you're with the right bunch of guys. And I pull this fish in. It t- took about sort of five minutes to sort of play it and. Because you let you let it go for a run, like Spanish. Are you back at the surface at that point? Yeah, like you're just reeling it in from the top of the surface. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, right. Spanish are famous for that. Like they have one big, like really fast, hard run, and then you know you you let them do that. You put a bit of tension on them, and then at the end of that run, when they're a bit tired, you start to sort of haul them in, and um, and then they'll light up a couple more times. But generally, that first one is the big significant run, 
And and that's pretty much what he did. You know, I, I took about five minutes backwards and forwards, and then I had my my uh, my hand in his um in his gills on the left hand side of his head, pulled him in, and he stopped kicking, or more or less stopped kicking. I've stuck my knife into his head, and uh, turned his lights out. And um and then all the boys were all high fiving, and it's crazy. And then uh, I was like, all right, sweet, I've got my mackerel for the for the day. So let's get you guys a fish because none of these guys had shot mackerel. So um. And mackerel can be pretty rough on gear, you know. When you haven't shot a fish over ten kilo, they, they just, they just, they're more powerful than you than, than you give them credit for. And so, and you've got to learn how to how much tension to put on the line when you play them and stuff like that. And your shot placement has to be pretty good. Like you want to be in some bony structure because if you try and put too much tension on your shaft, just tears out of their bodies. So anyway, I basically just help the boys with gear and positioning and stuff. And everyone's got a good gear, a good um, fish each. And I, I was sort of fixing someone's gun and I've sort of fallen away from the other boys and there's two have gone in one direction and I'm kind of out the back trying to fix this real gun for this other fella. And um, just as I got the gun fixed and I started putting the the rubbers on, like the big uh, the power bands, that the other thing that sort of propel the shaft, just as I've, I've got this gun sorted out, these, these silhouettes swam straight by underneath me. And um, it's another school of big mackerel again. And uh, I, I don't know what it was. That day was just off the chain. Like there was just mackerel everywhere. So I've, I've dived down again and sort of done my same trick. I've swam straight at these fish. They've swam away from me. So I turned away from them. And then this huge fish came right in on me. And um, I plugged him. I wasn't 100% on my shot. And so I've sort of hit the surface and it's peeling line out. And I'm screaming for the boys. but. No one's there. Everyone's 100, 150 metres away because I've got fish on in another part. And then this mackerel takes all the line off my reel, like 50 metres of line is gone and I've got nothing left on this reel and it starts towing me through the water. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that might probably scare me. Go, Oh, shit, hope it doesn't go deep. (laughs) Well, some fish like mackerel and, and wahoo, generally they run straight along the surface and sailfish are the same actually, although I haven't shot one of them, but um, they they run along the surface. So as long as you hold on and your, your shaft doesn't tear out of the fish because you're putting too much pressure on the line, generally you're fine. And um, But I, like I'm looking through my mask and this bloody, this fish has just taken off and it's towing me through the water faster than I can swim. And <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I've thing going i've fought this thing for 15 minutes and still no one's showing up i can't even see the boat at this stage and i'm out here getting towed around by this huge fish and i eventually sort of start to get it in and then i can see my shafts like really starting to tear a serious hole in this fish like it hadn't even penetrated all the way through the fish and um so i managed to sort of get it fairly close and then i've dived down without scaring it too much and just slipped my hand in its gills again got it to the surface put my uh, knife in its head and it, and it was dead. And um, that fish ended up being about 25 kilo. Um, so not even like, you know, in comparison to my body weight, not even a big fish, but it was able to tow me probably about 200, 250 metres fairly quickly through the water, you know. Yeah, I was, was going to mention that. What do you do? Like, I mean, how do you stay safe in regards to, like you might have a, something up the tops of the boat, but if you drift away, how, how do you? How do they know where you are when you come up? Like if you were, you've were, you been drifted a kilometre away and they can't see you, what happens then? Yeah, well, this is, this is the risk, you know. So generally you want to have a highly visible float on the surface and um, some guys will carry like a safety sausage 
in their wetsuit. And then basically you can inflate it and it's a bright orange thing and it sticks about a metre and a metre and a half out of the water and you can wave that. Um, but honestly, if you do, if the boat, if divers get separated from the boat, generally we're relying on their floats. But um, current's fairly predictable. I guess in my situation where a fish tows you, it can be really different. Like if that had been a marlin, like a marlin will tow you kilometres. You know, like there's a guy, Tim McDonald off here. You can look his YouTube up, YouTube video up. He shoots 138 kilo black marlin. And this thing just takes, like he might as well have put water skis on. This thing's just towing him on the surface. Wow. That'd yeah, be kind man. of scary when I go, holy shit, I'm up on the surface. I can't see the boat. Holy shit, what do I do? If you can watch that Tim McDonald YouTube Black Marlin, I think it's 138 kilo fish, but he tells the story and you watch this thing. It's just phenomenal. Like if the boat wasn't following him there and they weren't right onto him from the – he could very easily have um, become lost at sea. So, yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah, be careful out there. And what do you do when you get something that big or even 15, whatever size and above? If you're down, do you normally just, um, you know, like I've seen, I think I've seen some guys do this, correct me if I'm wrong, like just, you know, you put them in a bag, the fish in a bag and leave them down there or do you, something that big, you go, no, head back to the surface, give it to the boatie on the boat? Yeah, we've got generally most of the spearfishing boats you head out on, you've got somewhere between like a maybe 150 or 300, 400 litre esky. So and we've got ice prepared in there. So we just if you if the fish won't fit in lengthways, because sometimes they're more than a meter and a half long or whatever, you you might just chop them straight down the middle and then put the two portions in under ice. And um, but I think that day when like the the story I was referring to before with Tim McDonald, that pretty much pulled that fish on board and then headed back in shore because there's no way to keep that that fish chilled, you know. So yeah. um because I've seen yeah. sort of guys maybe with a, maybe it's a bag or something, or they've got a float away from them, so you know they don't get sharks coming up to them and that, and they sort of leave them in the water. I've seen. I don't know if that's a thing. I've seen it, but I don't know if that's a thing. Or as soon as you sort of shoot one, head back, give it to the boaty, back down again, or swap positions. We 100. percent We we get the boaty to come over and and pick fish up. Um, if you leave fish on your floats here in southeast Queensland, in most parts of New Zealand, um, New South Wales, sharks will just come and eat them off your float. And sometimes um, they might grab a mouthful of your float as well and just drag you as well. Oh, well, shit, no, no good. (laughs) So pulling the lady over, chucking the fish on, getting it on ice straight away. Yeah, not bad. It definitely sounds interesting. I mean, it sounds like really, really exciting, you know what I mean? Like I'm sure it is when you're down there. It's just, I mean, getting over that fear of, you know, not doing it. And, you know, like you're definitely like I'd feel like, well, I'm out of my element. I remember when I went – I think I was in the Great Barrier Reef and I did a bit of snorkeling then and you know you're off the main boat it's it's fairly low it's only some two three meters deep sometimes not even that and then he goes oh who wants to come out and do this thing over here it's like an extra 50 bucks and you know you get deep water I'm like so I did it and then I'm like it's there's nothing like seeing when you go that's a nice reef and then it just dips over into like black you know and I'm like I'm not going there I'm sticking in the middle of these people because if if they're going to go for someone it's hopefully it's someone on the edge you know I, that's funny though, like honestly, like I said earlier, like 98, 99% of the, you know, the interactions you have with sharks are just really good. Like honestly, like, um, and if they're, if they're um, going to be aggressive towards you, their body language changes and, you know, generally we can wave the boaty over, we all get back on the boat and we can move, you know, and yeah. um, when you're in clear water and um, yeah, like, yeah, that that's generally the case. So. 
Anyway, mate, tell us, I mean, how do people find you on the internet if they want to listen to, they want to get into some spearfishing, they want to listen to your podcast and, and, you know, basically get into the sport and learn about it and, you know, listen to your guests as well. Uh, where can they do that? Yeah, just search Noob Spiro, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O. And, um, they've got a website, Facebook, Facebook community, all the stuff's good. Uh, the, yeah, the podcast. You know, a bit like you, Jace. You know, I just try and find the most interesting people in my in my space to chat with, and I just get them to share their tips, stories, adventures, and uh, and just stoke on the lifestyle we live. Because I think you know, one thing we've got in common is I think we all want that back to basics. That you know, where we just reconnect with our food and uh, you know, and, and have a good time with our mates. Like that's that's pretty much what we do. And the podcast is just an extension of that. Just trying to you know, because sometimes you have dry spells, you can't get out in the ocean for a while. Like the podcast is just designed to keep people stoked about about what we love doing now it did start in 2014 so i don't know i don't even know if you can even call it the noob spiro anymore can you (laughs) i'm still pretty terrible so we'll call it the noob spiro podcast forever i reckon for me it's just about staying curious and um and, and always learning for sure all right, guys, so if you want to head over, you can check out the Noob Spiros on all these different platforms, all the good ones anyway, just like me. Uh, listen to his show and comment. And also, too, if there's got to, you know, some comments and stuff, let him know. You heard about you know, the Noob Spiro on the Australian Hunting Podcast. We've interviewed a lot of different people on a lot of different things. And uh, if they're on YouTube or they've got some social media, let them know in the comments that you heard them here on AHP. Check him out on the social media platforms. Uh, if you want to become a Spiro, I'm sure you can email him and have a chat about it. I'm sure he'll be more than willing to help you out. So, Isaac, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Really appreciate it. Hope to uh, catch up again soon. Thanks. Yeah, cool. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.